On January 5th, 2020, British chemist and the country's first astronaut in space, Helen Sharman, told The Guardian that aliens exist. There's no two ways about it. It's possible they're here now, and we simply can't see them. On April 28th, 2020, the New York Times reported that the Pentagon's Department of Defense released confirmed video footage of UFOs taken by three different Navy officers. Every year, thousands of people across the United States report seeing UFOs. Yet there's still a culture of disbelief around UFOs and alien encounters. Maybe that's because government agents like the elusive Mirage Men, also known as the Men in Black, have waged massive disinformation campaigns. For decades, they've discredited witnesses who wanted to tell their stories of alien encounters. Maybe there'd be hundreds of thousands of reports if the men in black didn't threaten people into staying silent. Maybe you've seen aliens yourself, but don't remember, because government agents took your memories by force. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a podcast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. This is our first episode on the Men in Black, or as they were later known, Mirage Men. No matter what they're called, their mission is to spread fear, confusion, and disinformation among the UFO community. This episode will cover the history of the Men in Black and how, as their shadowy methods evolved, they became known as the Mirage Men. Next episode, we'll question the purpose of their secretive operations. Many believe the groups protect confidential military technology and obfuscate existing relations between governments and extraterrestrials. Others claim that the Men in Black are aliens themselves. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The phrase, Men in Black, might call to mind the film franchise of the same name, starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. The movies were hugely popular, raking in hundreds of millions at box offices worldwide. The film's subject matter actually aligns quite well with the stories of their alleged real-life counterparts. When dispatched to the scene of an alien encounter, the Men in Black's purpose was to keep witnesses quiet. 
Except in actual accounts, the men in black never had technology capable of efficiently erasing a witness's memories. They had to resort to uglier tactics, like intimidation, confiscation, and brute force. According to UFO researchers, or as they call themselves, ufologists, reported interactions with men in black followed a similar pattern. They arrived unannounced at the home or workplace of an individual who'd recently had an alien encounter of some kind. This could range from a sighting to an abduction. Occasionally, the men in black showed up alone. But more typically, they traveled in groups of two or three. Agents were always men, never women, dressed in black suits, fedoras, and dark sunglasses. After ensuring cooperation from their intended target, they disappeared without a trace. Most reports of the men in black occurred during a period of UFO mania from the late 40s through the 70s. Around the 1980s, it is believed that the organization pivoted. Rather than using intimidation tactics, the mysterious agents took a more oblique approach. They became known as the Mirage Men, a term popularized by author and ufologist Mark Pilkington. Arguably more menacing than their predecessors, their true agenda became much harder to untangle. The first reported incident with the Men in Black was almost 75 years ago. On the morning of June 27, 1947, Harold Dahl sailed his boat with his son, Charles, and his dog off the shore of Maury Island near Washington State. Dahl and his son were gathering logs from the water when he noticed something odd in the sky. Half a mile above their boat, Dahl counted six round metallic objects that he later described as donut-shaped. They floated in the air, defying gravity. As he watched them dance, he felt the hair rise on the back of his neck. Dahl reached for his camera and snapped a few photos. As he did, one of the objects plummeted. In seconds, it fell nearly 1,500 feet. It crashed into the water and exploded. Metal shards flew in every direction. One fragment sliced open Charles' arm as it soared by. Another struck their beloved family pet. Dahl rushed his injured son and dog back to shore. Once out of harm's way, Dahl developed his photos. He thought maybe his memory had played tricks on his mind. But the developed pictures proved otherwise. There they were, documented in black and white. Six unidentified flying objects unlike anything he'd ever seen before. Charles's wounds recovered, but unfortunately, their family dog passed away from injuries related to the explosion. However, Dahl had little time to mourn or process the experience before the men in black came calling. The following morning, less than 24 hours after Dahl spotted the objects, a stranger in a black suit knocked on his front door. Bewildered, Dahl listened as the man precisely outlined their otherworldly encounter from the previous morning. Before Dahl could ask questions, the man in black stopped him. Allegedly, he said, what I have said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe. The man was right. Dahl was speechless. He had no idea how the suited man learned of the encounter or traveled to the remote island in less than a day. 
It didn't make any sense. The stranger then warned Dahl to never speak of the incident. Otherwise, so-called bad things would happen. Dahl listened. He destroyed every photograph he had taken. Dahl did end up speaking about what he saw, though, first to his friend Fred Chrisman and later to the press. But Dahl only dared to share his experience after another man, Kenneth Arnold, received media attention for spotting a UFO. In June 1947, Dahl and Arnold brought forward two of the first ever widely publicized UFO sightings. Their stories kicked off a frenzy of hundreds more reported UFO sightings. Many included visits from the men in black. But none are more famous or more chilling than a 1976 encounter that happened in the coastal town of Old Orchard, Maine. UFO researcher and physician Dr. Herbert Hopkins puttered around his house. Evening was falling, and he was thinking about making dinner. As Hopkins gathered his ingredients, the phone rang. When he picked up, the male voice on the other end of the line claimed to be affiliated with a New Jersey-based UFO organization. Though they'd never met before, the gentleman wanted to meet with Hopkins that evening to compare research. It was urgent. Hopkins agreed. He turned on the porch light in anticipation of his visitor. Bizarrely, when he did, the unidentified caller was already coming up his front steps. But as they stepped into Hopkins' porch light, the doctor realized that it wasn't someone, but rather something. And its appearance sent a shiver down his spine. It was generally human-shaped and wore a well-fitted black suit. But the face was unusual. It was completely bald, without eyebrows or eyelashes. Its skin looked plastic, unnaturally smooth and white. The only color in its complexion came from its lips, which were a deep blood red. When the strange humanoid spoke, its voice sounded pre-recorded, as if someone had inserted a machine into its vocal cords. But it appeared to have thoughts of its own. When it entered Hopkins' home, it told him to take out a penny, put it on the table, and watch it. Hopkins later told reporters the penny started to develop a silver color instead of copper. Then the silver became bluish, and the penny was becoming quite fuzzy, out of focus, blurred. And then it simply was gone. It slowly dematerialized. Before the humanoid left, it ordered Hopkins to destroy all of his UFO research. Terrified, Hopkins obeyed, and he never saw or heard from the men in black again. Hopkins' account, and others like it, has led some to believe that maybe the men in black were more than power-tripping members of the federal government. Maybe they were aliens themselves, and they were working with the American government. Coming up, men in black trade their suits for polo shirts and become known as Mirage Men. Hi, it's Richard. Ready to hear about my new favorite Spotify original from Parcast? It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, 
host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, she'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, George Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, JFK, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. Beginning in the late 1940s, the mysterious Men in Black reportedly terrorized ordinary citizens, silencing witnesses and destroying evidence that aliens and UFOs exist. But in the 70s, a new kind of government agent began interacting with ufologists and extraterrestrial witnesses. Instead of using intimidation tactics, these men welcomed ufologists into the fold. They became known as Mirage Men, and a 52-year-old engineer was one of the first to get tangled up in their schemes. Paul Benowitz had wavy hair and a penchant for aviator sunglasses. In 1979, both NASA and the United States Air Force contracted his company, Thunder Scientific, to work for them. Benowitz lived near Kirtland Air Force Base on the outskirts of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Nestled into the hills, his house gave him exclusive views of the Air Force landing strips, facilities, and the Manzano mountain range beyond. One evening in August 1979, Benowitz was enjoying the scenic displays from his rooftop deck when he spotted something odd in the distance. Two lights shot up from the ground below, flew around a mountain in the distance, then disappeared behind it. Benowitz stood still for a few seconds, unable to process what he'd seen. The lights moved faster than any aircraft he'd ever seen. At first, he assumed it was light playing tricks on his eyes, a combination of his exhaustion and the sun reflecting off a metallic surface. But it happened again. The next evening, Benowitz returned to his deck around the same time. He scanned the airfield below, and there they were, a pair of lights levitating before darting behind the mountain range at an incredible speed. Benowitz became convinced the lights weren't an illusion. They belonged to something real, and he wanted to know more. Benowitz constructed a radio antenna and receiver to intercept any communications. He had spent his entire career building complex electronics, so for him, a radio was nothing. He recorded small bursts of code that he couldn't decipher, along with radio transmissions and videos of the strange lights. None of it made sense. So on October 24th, 1979, 
Benowitz reached out to the experts right across the street in Kirtland Air Force Base. Officials connected Benowitz with Special Agent Richard Doty, a member of the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, abbreviated Air Force OSI. Though the term wasn't coined yet, Doty would later be recognized as one of the most prolific Mirage men in the field. Benowitz shared all of his recordings and documented evidence with Doty. It intrigued Doty enough for the agent to set up a visit with Benowitz at his house in the hills. Doty wanted to see Benowitz's view. Benowitz gave Doty a tour of his home. As he did, Doty documented Benowitz's equipment and asked a slew of technical questions about the engineer's setup. Benowitz's acumen appeared to impress Doty. After the tour culminated, the two men had a brief discussion. Doty shared his analysis of the evidence. The agent believed that Benowitz caught extraterrestrial ships and radio transmissions on tape. Benowitz couldn't believe it. He privately suspected that the lights weren't from this world, but he never expected a government agent to admit that UFOs were real. Little did he know, Doty's affirmations were just the beginning. Doty arranged for Benowitz to give a presentation to the Kirtland Air Force Base on November 10, 1979. At the end of his presentation, the highest-ranking person in the room, a brigadier general, congratulated Benowitz, saying the engineer had some very convincing information. He then asked how the Air Force could help further Benowitz's research. Benowitz's jaw almost hit the floor. Within a month of that meeting, the United States government started funding his research with only one caveat. All new and pre-existing research must remain confidential. It was supposedly a matter of national security. Benowitz agreed to the terms. By the early 80s, Benowitz's research led him to zero in on the Archuleta Mesa as a possible origin of the strange lights. The remote flat-topped hill was about a three-and-a-half-hour drive from the Air Force Base. But Benowitz had his pilot's license and owned a small plane. He flew over the area, looking for evidence of extraterrestrial vessels. If a spaceship had landed on the Mesa, it would have crushed fauna or left some sort of marking behind. When he found no such trace, he started to suspect that the mountain might act as a hangar, some kind of storage area for the alien craft. Benowitz sometimes took Agent Doty camping on the top of the Archuleta Mesa, hoping another pair of eyes would help him locate the source of the strange lights. But they never saw any lights, at least not in the sky. On a few occasions, Doty and Benowitz witnessed powerful lights shining all around them, but they came from underground. Each one pulsed before dying out, but the lights didn't have a pattern to them. Excavations and examinations of the soil revealed nothing out of the ordinary. When he wasn't camping, Benowitz surveyed the area from the sky. After months of searching, he finally spotted the black metallic remains of what appeared to be some sort of crashed aircraft. He snapped photographs of it from his plane. It was a massive breakthrough. Benowitz brought the pictures to Agent Doty and other officials at the Kirtland Air Force Base. Their explanation for the wreckage 
shocked him. A few Air Force officers had witnessed the crash. The metal shards and fragments in Benowitz's photographs were all that was left of an alien vessel. Aliens gifted the ship to humankind as a token of goodwill. But when Air Force officials took it out for a test drive, the same aliens who gave them the ship shot it out of the sky. Supposedly, the move was an intimidation tactic. The aliens wanted to make sure the humans understood the extraterrestrials' unadulterated power and ruthlessness. But we should mention that we found no evidence to corroborate the attack beyond Benowitz's account. Perhaps the truth isn't so violent. Or perhaps the violence is the reason it remains tightly under wraps to this day. That said, according to Benowitz, his stomach dropped as he took in the news of the Air Force's strained relations with aliens. The revelation raised the stakes of his work. His investigation could spell the difference between life or death for humankind. The pressure he felt severely impacted his mental health. The more data he collected, the more paranoid he became. By the mid-1980s, Benowitz saw alien activity everywhere. Convinced that something was tampering with his research, he started to suspect aliens were breaking into his home. And he had reason to be paranoid. One night, Benowitz noticed someone peering into his windows from a home across the street. His son saw the same thing. Perhaps it was the same alien who visited Dr. Herbert Hopkins back in 1976. Benowitz called Agent Doty to tell him. He told Doty that if the Air Force was behind the surveillance, it needed to end. Doty assured him, Whoever was spying on him didn't belong to the Air Force. Even amid all this chaos, Benowitz continued decoding alien transmissions. He pieced together that the beings had somehow run out of water on their planet and were looking for a new one to inhabit. Allegedly, one message asked Benowitz to help the extraterrestrials broker a deal to take over the Earth. Panic-stricken, Benowitz told Doty that he didn't trust the beings to enter a negotiation in good faith. He believed their plan to take over the world was filled with malintent. But no matter how much Benowitz pleaded, Doty and his Air Force colleagues never took action. Benowitz felt alone and simultaneously responsible for preventing an alien invasion. His family became so concerned about his mental state that they reached out to the Air Force again on his behalf. Around 1985, Doty recommended Benowitz take a step back from his research. But Benowitz's obsession continued. He couldn't understand why no one understood the situation's urgency. For Benowitz's health or for the project's secrecy, the Air Force withdrew their support from his investigation. They left Benowitz to feel alone in the world while fighting an intergalactic Cold War. Three years later, Benowitz woke up in the middle of the night, left his house, and got in his car. He drove into the desert, with no reason or destination in mind. When he returned home, Benowitz explained to his family that aliens had invaded his bedroom. They materialized through the walls to drug him with mind-controlling substances, he showed them his arm, 
there were multiple punctures from injections. But his family didn't believe the punctures came from aliens. They believed it came from self-harm. In 1988, they checked Benowitz into a psychiatric ward. His sons took over his business and the engineer withdrew from public life. And with that, his research ended. There are two ways to interpret what happened to Benowitz's incredible mind. One, his paranoia overtook his sanity and relegated him to a life of delusions. Or two, the government and Agent Doty thought Benowitz had learned too much. And they let the world think he went insane to prevent the truth from getting out. Coming up, the Mirage Men infiltrate the entire UFO community. Now, back to the story. In the 1970s, the United States government reportedly handled cases of UFO sightings differently than they had in the past. Instead of dispatching ominous men in black to threaten ufologists into silence, agents engaged with new research. In the case of Paul Benowitz, his partnership with Richard Doty of the Air Force Office of Special Investigations started fruitfully, but ended with Benowitz in a psychiatric clinic. Benowitz's story trickled into the UFO community and enthusiasts became suspicious of government support. In the late 80s and early 90s, they started referring to the duplicitous agents like Agent Doty as Mirage Men. But even though ufologists believed that Mirage Men couldn't be trusted, it was undeniable that access to government support was critical to Benowitz's research. Cooperation seemed like a necessary evil. Ufologist Greg Bishop, author of Project Beta, the story of Paul Benowitz, summed it up nicely at a UFO conference. He said, why would you listen to those Mirage Men? They lie. Yes, but they talk. And if they talk, once in a while, you're going to get a piece of information that you want. And if you keep an even keel, you'll be okay. You just have to listen. This is exactly how ufologist William Moore treated his interactions with the Mirage Men in the 80s. In appearance, Moore was tall, stocky, with a bushy beard and a wild haircut. He may not have had Paul Benowitz's qualifications, but he dedicated himself to his investigations and writing. In 1980, 37-year-old Moore co-authored The Roswell Incident with fellow UFO researcher Charles Berlitz. The book detailed the then-forgotten 1947 UFO crash in Roswell, New Mexico. For those unfamiliar, in July 1947, a flying saucer supposedly crashed near Roswell. On July 8th, the Roswell Army Airfield released a public statement saying they had recovered the remains of a flying disc. They recanted the statement the next day, but not before a number of conspiracy theories were born. For the Roswell incident, Moore and Berlitz interviewed as many witnesses as possible to untangle the truth from decades of rumors and hoaxes. Although mainstream critics panned the book, it landed on the bestseller charts. Ever since, 
it has been especially beloved by ufologists everywhere. In fact, it's credited with reviving alien tourism in and around Roswell. In September 1980, after a radio interview promoting his book, Moore received a phone call. According to Moore's account, in reference to UFOs, the caller said to him, we think you're the only one we've heard that seems to know what he's talking about. From their voice, Moore believed the caller was male, but the stranger abruptly hung up before revealing any more information. Moore never learned his name, but later referred to him by a code name, Falcon. A few days later, after another radio appearance, Moore received a second phone call. Same voice, same message, but this time, Moore convinced them to meet at a diner. Falcon would wear a red tie. The meeting was more than Moore could have hoped for. After exchanging a few pleasantries and ordering meals, Falcon offered Moore the holy grail of ufology. Proof that UFOs existed and the government was covering them up. In exchange for the evidence, Moore just had to be an information conduit. Moore would tell Falcon everything he knew about the UFO community and deliver hand-selected information chosen by Falcon to its members. Moore was immediately skeptical. He said, I knew I was being recruited, but I had no idea for what. But Moore took the dangling carrot of undeniable evidence that aliens exist. He agreed to the terms, and Falcon slid his first piece of evidence across the table. Moore opened the envelope in the privacy of his home, but he knew immediately it was a hoax. He chided himself. He should have known the offer was too good to be true. Moore set up another meeting with a government agent for the express purpose of telling him off. This time, when Moore arrived, Falcon wasn't alone. Moore barely registered the other man's presence. He didn't wait for an introduction before confronting Falcon about the false documents. However, when Moore finished, Falcon congratulated him. He had passed the test. Falcon then introduced him to his new handler, Special Agent Richard Doty. And just like that, Moore became an undercover member of Air Force OSI. Moore began feeding mis- and disinformation to the UFO community at Doty's behest, including hand-delivering faux intelligence to one of Doty's co-workers, the owner of Thunder Science, Paul Benowitz. But before long, Moore got frustrated. Doty promised him access to bona fide confidential government documents, hard evidence. The carrots started to feel like a mirage, until... On December 11, 1984, someone dropped a manila envelope in the mail slot of ufologist Jamie Shandera's home. Inside the envelope was a roll of 32-millimeter film, photographs of classified government documents. One of which showed a memo written to President Dwight D. Eisenhower on November 18, 1952. Eisenhower detailed the findings of 12 experts called MJ-12 on the wreckage of the 1947 Roswell crash and mentioned alien victims. 
When Shandara showed the pictures to his close collaborator, William Moore, Moore had to stop himself from getting carried away. He needed to prove the photographs were real. He meticulously combed over the memo for the next several months. As he did, Moore and Shandara received postcards postmarked from all over the world. Each one had a nonsensical word or phrase on them. For example, one said, Reese's Pieces. Another, Suitland. Moore dismissed the postcards as distractions meant to throw him off track. But then, he and Shandara received another message asking them to review a collection of declassified Air Force documents. They had just been added to the federal government's national archives. Apparently, the documents were being kept in Suitland, Maryland, and the archive director was named Ed Reese. Still unsure whether the lead could be trusted, Moore traveled to Maryland. He scoured the National Archives for clues. He came across an obscure memo about a rescheduled 1954 MJ-12 meeting, the group of 12 experts mentioned in the Eisenhower document. The memo's owner printed it on thin onion skin paper used to create carbon copies in the 1950s. In other words, it was confirmation that MJ-12 was real. On June 13, 1987, Moore brought the MJ-12 documents to the greater UFO community at the National UFO Conference. Some ufologists rejoiced. The information confirmed a government cover-up, something that they'd suspected for years. But most of them dismissed the news as they did with all information that came from the government. It couldn't be trusted. Some went so far as to try to discredit Moore for believing them in the first place. After his presentation, the UFO community ostracized Moore, and rumors spread about who had provided him with the MJ-12 documents. Essentially, Moore had outed himself as an Air Force mole. At the 1989 Mutual UFO Network Conference, Moore took control of his narrative. He booked a primetime slot to make a confession. When it was his time to go on, Moore fidgeted behind the podium. There were thousands of people in the audience, a standing room only crowd waiting to hear him speak. Eventually, Moore summoned his nerve. He outlined his relationship with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. He revealed that he had aided and abetted in their disinformation campaign. He gave his assessment of what information he felt could be trusted and exactly where he thought the world stood with alien relations. Among other statements, Moore told the audience that highly intelligent aliens visited Earth often and could control humans' ability to sense their presence. Factions of the government were aware of their power. During his speech, the boos and shouts from the crowd got so loud they forced Moore to stop speaking. Conference organizers ran to the mic to settle the audience. Moore's speech was as divisive as the MJ-12 documents. In a community already rife with rumors and conspiracy theories, all trust evaporated from the room in an instant. That was Moore's last public appearance. Moore may have found evidence of the government's role in a UFO cover-up, but it cost him his reputation, his community, 
and his career. And unfortunately, he can never really be sure that the MJ-12 documents were authentic. Which means the Mirage men got exactly what they wanted. A divided and confused UFO community. But was that all they wanted? All we know is that the Mirage men appeared to operate on the fringes of the UFO community, infiltrating and injecting it with lies and half-truths. But it's not clear why. Some suspect that Mirage men are simply a modern extension of the Men in Black. Their mission is to silence witnesses and experts on extraterrestrial activity. Instead of intimidating their victims, they discredit them. Others suspect Mirage men are running interference to keep the Earth's contact with aliens top secret. That the United States government is working with aliens right now. And some of its members are aliens themselves. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with Episode 2 of Men in Black and Mirage Men. For more information on Mirage Men, amongst the many sources we used, we found the documentary Mirage Men and the book Mirage Men, An Adventure into Paranoia, Espionage, Psychological Warfare, and UFOs by Mark Pilkington extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Connor Sampson with writing assistance by Allie Wicker and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Richard, and I'm back to remind you to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. There's torrid love affairs, shocking blackmail schemes, and even murder. I think you're really going to get a kick out of it. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.